you're listening to That'll Preach. Thanks for uh, hopping on with us. And we are uh, going to have a, a good conversation with our friend, Joe Minnick. He's actually been with us before. If you haven't checked out the podcast we did with him a while back on enduring divine absence, how we deal with our doubts, how we deal with the difficulties of life and how it challenges our faith in God in a, in a modern world. You got to check out that episode. Uh, he did a great job with that. We really enjoy talking with him and we enjoyed it so much that we had to have him back because a lot of what he talked about in that last episode touched on some other work he's done uh, regarding the nature of work and how that integrates with faith and all that kind of fun stuff. So Joe, thank you so much for coming on with us again. Oh yeah. Thanks for having me. Joe, I, uh, aside from being just a jolly guy to talk to, you're also quite insightful. And uh, I've, I've been enjoying reading uh, through the book, uh, Protestant Moral Theology from uh, Davenant Institute. And you are a teaching fellow there. So, you know, we're kind of uh, propping up your merchandise here. Oh, but, thanks. Uh, the, uh, is that Protestant social teaching? Protestant social teaching. Yeah. That's right. Oh, no, that's, that's right. Okay. I just want to make sure they get the right book so that we get paid. That's right. So, uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, ju I just ripped a whole other book. Yeah. You know. but, uh, yeah. No. It, and I think it's a really helpful book. And uh, you wrote a little chapter in there with Colin Chan Redimer, which yes. I was like, oh, man, an Asian guy. And then I saw his picture. I'm like, hmm, I guess uh, not an Asian, not an Asian guy. guy at all, yes. but, but still insightful as well. And uh, but I appreciated your work there. And uh, you wrote about work and faith and all these types of things. And uh, I wanted to ask you, what got you interested in this topic? Because you start off your article or your, your little chapter talking about some kind of convention where people are in dancing robot suits or some kind of bizarre thing. Yeah. That was quite the, uh, quite the way yes. to start off. And I uh, just want to hear yes. what inspired you to think about these kinds of things and yeah, what dancing robots have to do with it. Yeah, that particular story came from Colin Cham Redimer. I was telling uh, Brian before this that for the longest time, if you met Colin, you'd know that he's 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 a very handsome six four man. And uh, <laughs> I thought his name literally was Colin Chad Redimer. <laughs> I was yeah. reading the Chan out of his name for years, and then it turns he's he's married to a to an Asian woman, and so Chan uh, Chan came from that basically. But. Uh, yeah, Colin and I wanted to write this piece largely because, you know, we've inherited a certain discourse about work largely in the reformed community and especially in, you know, sort of conservative political culture that's being widely rethought, I think, in a lot of ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the way my own interest, I suppose, the way I came into interest in the topic was partially through living a, in a kind of blue collar existence. I come from a pretty blue collar family uh, while I was working through all of my you know, through the master's degree and the PhD, I had a number a number of uh, types of jobs, both at kind of mid-level management and admin, uh, retail, uh, you know, been a waiter. So I've, I've kind of experienced a lot of what you might say as uh, uh, blue collar work. And that's made me think very hard about, I think, the nature of work and the nature of how what we do shapes our perceptions of reality. And so I think the way this linked to our last conversation is that in, in during divine absence, I, I predominantly focus on the, the role that technology plays uh, in shaping our perceptions of reality. Um, and in a sense, shaping our, our the way in which we sense that the cosmos speaks or does not speak to us. But it, it, since then, I, uh, I think I was alluding to last time, and you'll see some of that reflected in this particular this particular essay. 
uh, I've become persuaded that also our active relationship to the world, our active meaning making, the way in which we plug into the cosmos actively through our through our vocation and through our labor, when there's a when uh, most human beings experience their labor as something that is not uh, of immediate meaning. Uh, import and implication for them. In other words, when so much of our waking life and activity is kind of disconnected from the rest of life and is only a means to get this mysterious, quite new phenomenon in the history of the world called a paycheck. Uh, It's very important to realize most of history does not involve people's lives being mediated through this interesting thing called money. Uh, It's very crucial to see that's a very essential and peculiar component of modern life. And it's a world we inherit and it shapes the way that we relate to our work. And I think, therefore, the way that we imagine ourselves, imagine the cosmos and imagine God relative to the cosmos. I think it actually reshapes us in some pretty fundamental ways. And what that essay was meant to do then, putting tying a bow on that, I suppose, was to think through kind of the original created relationship to work. What was it that uh, defined work in the garden? What what uh, what is kind of an ideal, you know, when we're no civilization is perfect, but if you're moving toward an, a goal, you have to have some sense of what a good relationship would look like. And so some of that essay is meant to say, what what is that good, proper fitting relationship that we all crave uh, in a commonwealth and in in, uh, to be reflected in a jurisprudence? Uh, and yet part of that essay is also to say, but we're still here. Uh, and the New Testament can even look at this deeply alienated labor called slavery, real slavery, <laughs> and tell the slave, nevertheless, you don't, you're not actually removed from the world of, of meaning and, and vocation uh, uh, and, king, and kingly reign, in a sense, and, and uh, putting the uh, final uh, 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 knot on that bow, if I could put it that way. The reason that's important to me is just going back to the story. When I When I was in all those retail jobs, one of the things that struck me was uh, I'm probably getting out of here. You know, I'm working on a master's, working on a PhD, and for various reasons, I can feel myself with some hope of not just being at a retail for all my life, or being a waiter all my life, or uh, working at mid-level in a mid-level bureaucracy all my life. But a lot of people that I've met along the way don't necessarily have a great opportunity to get out of that. Uh, and so, a lot of what I wanted to think about is how do you stay religiously oriented. How do you feel like your life has meaning? How do you recover a deeper sense of vocation, even when there's unjust structures of vocation that you just kind of have to deal with? I appreciated that part of your chapter where you were kind of saying we can stay in the sort of I I wish it wasn't this way. But then it's like, well, it is. And the New Testament speaks to the way things are in unjust economic arrangements, unjust kinds of employment, all these types of things. And, you know, it really was striking that opening illustration when I think it was some kind of rave where people are strapped to these robot or like kind of like machines that are on beat. And and it was this bizarre kind of dystopian vision of it's almost like it didn't matter if they were people in there. It's just as long as the beats uh... were. As long as it was on time and the movements were being made, that, that's all that mattered. Yeah, were they? Yeah, the I think what Colin discovered there was this, uh, yeah, it's this rave and there's people in dancing robot suits. And so the people's bodies are technically going through the motions of dancing, but the dancing is not coming in from, from inside of them. It's sort of an externally imposed thing on their bodies. And so the question kind of Colin asks there is, is this somewhat similar to the modern man's relationship to work? This right. kind of unmanning where you're kind of 
in, in various levels of complexity, nevertheless, at the end of the day, a little bit of an automaton for motions that really come from outside of you and are not meant by you in an, a deeply interior way. And and you were saying that Colin is an accomplished like breakdancer himself. So this was like yes. a personal oh, yeah. artistic Colin kind is of... A- Colin is a world renowned. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Colin Chan Redimer is, in fact, uh, 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 actually, I don't know. Maybe he is. But yeah, as maybe, far as I'm yeah. aware of, he's not. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Jury's still out, right? But I, yes. that, that phrase you use, alienated labor, that's a really interesting mm-hmm. phrase. Um, and and you, you talked about the with, with technology and the disconnection of our work from fruitfulness from actually kind of seeing a direct result of that you think about people you know cubicles or you talk about retail stores you you feel like you're just kind of passing along goods the kind of creative work isn't there yes and so there's a couple of things to kind of a couple of threads to pull apart there is that on the one hand and it's interesting, uh, this is really something that is uh, one thing that surprised me when I was researching some of this stuff for vocation, uh, is uh, 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 that it's almost a part of the law of the nation, sort of in every religious tradition. When you go look at the sages talking about work, one thing that always seems uh, to be kind of a commonplace is that ideally, we all think that uh, what we do uh, 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 it would be good for the thing that we do every day uh, uh, to be rooted somehow in something for which we have some degree of interior aptitude. And it would be good for that interior aptitude to be that by means of which we link up in some way to the community. Uh, that's fairly universally thought. You can even see that a little bit in the, the New Testament teaching of the gifts, right? What, what mm-hmm. do we all do in the church? Well, we all bring a gift to the church. We all link up with one another by virtue of those gifts. And there's a dignifying there's a dignifying effect to that. Um, um, now, with that, that doesn't necessarily mean, and I and I think what could be clarified here is that uh, obviously in the real world, that doesn't mean that all work is uh, super fulfilling all the time. Right. Uh, but there's a difference. I think there's a line in the chapter that says something like, <clears throat> there's a difference between enduring the ordinary banality of work uh, for one's own immediate ends rather than for the ends of somebody else. Some work in this life is banal and medial, and you have to do a bunch of repetitive action that's not particularly interesting. So you learn songs to pass the time or sure. whatever. But for the most most of the time, people have done that kind of work in history. Well, it's because I'm farming my ground to feed my family, and right. so still the relationship or the mom doing the the mother is still perhaps yeah. a, somebody that does a lot of that medial labor. But it's very obvious that it's meaningful, right? Right? <laughs> because right. like. The clothes are clean now. And yeah. I think uh, previously, at least in a lot of social arrangements, uh, even if work was banal or, 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 or somewhat, somewhat you know, modest in all sorts of ways, it nevertheless linked up to your wife, your, your wife, your life uh, uh, in, in immediately obvious ways. Uh, and, and I think one of the unique characteristics of modern label really is this phenomenon where we sort of leave the home front and then we go to a place to kind of belong to a system of exchange that we don't really understand. We know what our part in it, but then we go home and somehow a paycheck comes out of that. And then that pays for this thing called a home, which now becomes coded as a center of consumption rather than a center of production. And so all those moving parts, I think, play into, yeah, yeah, sort of play into, uh, yeah, play into these sorts of things. My uh, co-host, Paul, he actually sent an article to me about it was from this Catholic philosopher, and 
he was taught and this this philosopher was talking about how he and his family they did the whole homestead life and how it changed the way that they parented and he talks about how they go hunting and their kids learn about death they plant and they see the earth give fruit and in the home it becomes a place and he uses that kind of language of the household becomes a place of creation not consumption right. and i i hear that and i'm like oh man that's great and then you kind of had this romanticized idea and then i'm like yes i don't want to be a farmer honestly you know yeah it's like, <laughs> no, exactly we can't all if we're all farmers <laughs> yeah. you know like i don't know it's a hard I life do too. this in the birds yeah, yeah i know exactly. i'm like i'm like is there is there a more you know yeah off-brand version of this that i can still reap some of the benefits of but yeah. how do we how do we take that and you know because that is it's almost an industry of itself simplified living clean living local yes. markets, and that's great but what are ways that that that, that can transfer because i don't think we can go back you know yes, that's a great uh that's i really appreciate that point because because a lot of times i think you're right that kind of this uh, this this desire recognizing that we've gone through a significant shift could easily create in this created us some perception that what we need to do is kind of go back to what a household looked like and how it functioned 150 years ago. And I think you're right. Once once that becomes the project, you're just one more lifestyle project in the pile of lifestyle projects that is out there these days. You know, for some people, it's you know the simple the simple movement. I can't remember what you call it. The simplification people, uh, 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 the people that get rid of everything. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think this is you know I want to say that my answers to this are very provisional because I think that is precisely the question we need to be thinking about, which is how do you with the hundreds of millions of modern people that live in suburbs, and let's be honest, are probably going to still be living in suburbs. How do they create that sense of locale, uh, that sense of household, that sense of connection to place um, uh, uh, in a way that, that, that recovers some of those goods, but is nevertheless firmly placed within the modern order? And one thing to say, I think, is that we have seen that a little bit in the past, Joshua Mitchell makes this point that like you did have a deeper sense of the local and of community when half of the population was at home in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons the suburbs feel so desolate these days is because there's two parents and they're all gone all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you have a lot more sense of just kind of isolated homes. So you, you lose a sense of the local in that way. That's more a broader sense of the local as it pertains to labor. I, I think some of this is to say, uh, it depends how much it matters to you. So that is to say, it could be that um, you have to sacrifice a, a higher paycheck to get a, a, some type of work uh, that means a lot to you. And one thing I think this does mean, I will say this, is I think it's very important if you can to do something that you enjoy on some level. Uh, Jordan Peterson would put it in an almost opposite way. And maybe in the modern world, this is a better way to put it. Uh, don't do anything you absolutely hate if you can avoid it. Uh, it's not good for you. It's not good for the people around it's you. Not it's, it's, it's not, not good. good. It's not, not good. It's not good. It's yeah. unrealistic, Matt. Uh, yes, it's unreal. <laughs> yeah. It's unrealistic. Uh, uh, now, God might in his providence force you to have to do that. But if you sure. don't have to do that, it's actually for your good and the good of your dominion and vocation uh, to do something that you enjoy. And I think one thing that we need to be thinking about are just creative ways to solve these problems, because none of it is the type of labor. It's not bad to flip burgers. Uh, you can. I, there's a guy I know who owns a restaurant down the street here, 
making burgers. And he's done it for 50 years and they're incredible. And he has, and he's, has connected to the community through his burgers. <laughs> but uh, right. uh, that's very different than, than, than most of those kinds of, most of those kinds of relationships. And I think what we need to be thinking is um, it's almost more about restoring, I think, restoring some degree of ownership and labor, not considering it whatever way we can, not consider it ordinary that uh, the average person's relationship to the institution they're a part of is that they are an instrument for wages. Uh, uh, so one development you see along those lines that I think is promising is the development of co-ops, hmm. cooperative forms of labor, where it's not as easy just to kick somebody out of an institution. That assumes that whatever whatever way you connect into the community through your labor uh, uh, is dignified and sacred in some way. <laughs> You're not just an instrument that be, can be kicked out. Sometimes that's settled at the, at, at the level of legal incentive or financial incentive. Um, and I think in a post-COVID era, this is the last thing I'll say that's provisional. In a post-COVID era, one of the ways in which I think we're seeing this is that a lot more jobs have the capacity to be remote now. Mm -hmm. uh, that's creating, I think, a new era where you see some possibility of recovering um, a local space and even revitalizing small towns. Because what you see are a lot of people who just need an interconnect connection to make a paycheck uh, and might go move to some small town that has a real local presence. But, but I think the, the most fundamental thing behind all of that, I suppose, is to say to any extent that a person's labor, uh, to any extent that somebody can be immediately connected to their labor and their labor not be an instrument for another, entirely speaking, you might say, uh, an instrument for another, you know, made merely a product, as it were, labor power. <laughs> to any extent that that can be resisted, I think we're approximating justice. And then again, then you just add in all the New Testament's uh, uh, exhortations about injustice. And this is where Luther, last comment I'll make here, Luther's doctrine of vocation really is broad and brilliant. Uh, Gustav Wingren inspired a lot in that chapter. Gustav Wingren has written this book called Luther on Vocation which I highly, highly recommend to anybody that wants to think about this question. I think that's a, it really shows that Luther's a genius, I think, on this precise question. You talked about what, it really is about what matters to you. Do you want it enough or what are your kind of priorities? Because everything is a, a trade-off. I think about, you know, in our neighborhood, we've got, um, there's, there's these, there's a, a group of homes and they all go to the same church and, uh, and we're, and we're friends with them and, and they, you know, their pastor, he'll come around with this, giant um stroller thing it seats like nine kids and he'll take the kids around you know with his wife around the neighborhood and then all the kids know each other and mm. and but it's they have to settle for you know th that that's going to be that's going to mean that they're going to live in an area that you know is going to be it, it's it, they're not going to have the giant house but they're going to have this right. really rich community you know right. they're not going to be able to section themselves off they're purposely living in a place in which you can be very neighbor-like to one another and, it, yeah. and it is one of those things where I guess everyone has to kind of take inventory and go, well, we don't have to go to a farm, but like, are there, are, are we orienting our lives in a way that, that we want? Yeah. You know? And, yeah. I think uh, that's right. That there's, there's one part of it is kind of the, whatever it is that can change labor patterns and labor structures such that people are just more connected and have really what that means is they have more ownership, more dominion over their own, their own gifts in a sense. 
uh, ownership of their own gifts and the products of those gifts. I think that, you know, that's one side of it. And that's the hardest side of it. The side you're talking about, I think, is the one where there, there are some solutions we can see, which is uh, nevertheless recovering that deeper sense of of local, the local and the vocation that can be accomplished again in the modern suburb. And again, I think that's where Mitchell's point that in the past, the suburb could be a center of community because half of the people were home. And it right. might look a little different how you get half of the people home now than it was then. Right. Uh, nevertheless, I think you'll see revitalized communities if you see people, bodies, you know, kind of literally smashed together. Uh, this is where you see, I think, in certain urban planning movements, one of the things I've seen is um, uh, a lot of uh, new new developments will make a neighborhood, but they'll make sure that the barbershop and a bar and the grocery store and several things are kind of within walking distance. Yeah. And the idea there is, is bodies literally have to get out of the house and then smash into each other. And that's when you uh, that's when you create a community is they accidentally become friends. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know. Uh, when, when, when it, there was everything before was kind of driven by necessity. It seems like I mean, it's like it's, it wasn't like before industrial relation. People are like, "Why don't we create this community?" It's like, no, we need each other. We're going to die. <laughs> you know, winter's yes. coming. We got to We got to band yeah. together. Yeah. And now we don't have that kind of impetus to do. Like we don't feel that pressure. Thankfully, I think it's a good thing. But then we almost have to be more intentional in uncovering in in purposely doing the things that were driven by necessity before that were actually really beneficial for building yes. communities yes um, without saying that let's you know cut the power grid and just go back to the stone yeah. age or something like that this this is yeah and this is the the shift from a kind of there there's a certain level of you know i often use the metaphor of kind of Cult, no, I don't want to say cultural adulthood, but like removal from the comforts of the home hmm. where we are right now, meaning when you when you're out of the home, if you're going to eat well, you just have to decide to eat well, yeah. you know, and, and there's a yeah. lot of things that were kind of givens in life in a lot of and still are in some communities and social structures that in a lot of modern lives has to be kind of consciously chosen. And that's unique and creates unique virtues, but it also uh, tends to be something we fail at because we're not used to having to make this kind of thing happen uh, in the same way. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about, you had mentioned the the reality of the fact that sometimes you're in a job, you're in the realtor job, or you're in a very unjust company, or you're under a very unjust government or something like that, and and, and you're just in a bad situation. Um, how does Christianity, how does the hope of the gospel yeah. inform how you deal with being a slave? I mean, the, the Bible yeah. talks about unjust arrangements, and yet there's still hope even there to have dignity and work. Yeah, there's a there's it's I think the Bible flips the script there in a sense, because what I Going back to Luther, because I think Luther's just being very biblical here. In one sense, our vocation, one thing Luther captures about our vocation is that it's not just our kind of what we would consider our job. That you know, mm -hmm. that's a modern concept in the first place to go get a job. Your job yeah. used to just be being alive <laughs> and like making food so you don't die. Uh, but we have this thing called a job. And so in our in our in our word day, when we think of vocation or calling, we tend to think of a professional category of thing. Uh, but of course, the, the notion of calling is so much broader than that. You're called to be a husband. If you're a kid, you're called to be a child. 
uh, to your parents. It, you're called to be a church member, a citizen. And really, uh, this just gets back to Adam, you're just called to be a human. You are, by virtue of being alive and breathing air and walking around, a king or a queen, exercising dominion over this whole planet, uh, exercising dominion in some way through uh, your gifts toward your neighbor. And so there's there's a space. Here's one way of thinking about, I think, how to answer that question. There's a space of connection between human beings where everybody has some dominion. We all have gifts to give or withhold <laughs> uh, or damage others within a certain relational space, uh, in our, whether that be in our hearts and then that comes out through the vibes we send passive aggressively or aggressively. And I think what the New Testament does is says behind all of that, the meta vocation, if you could put it this way, just as in, in philosophy, we talk about the difference between being and beings, being considered sort of in itself and then being as it's manifested in particular things. So we could say in the vocational sphere, in the moral sphere, there's just the vocation of love. That really is the meta vocation from which you can never be alienated that is manifested in all your particular vocations. And you can experience alienation in a particular vocation, but you can never be alienated from that meta vocation. And I think what the New Testament does is forces you to go back to that meta vocation so that even if you're a slave or if you're a wife with a difficult marriage or a husband with a difficult marriage, what the New Testament is encouraging you to do in all those circumstances is uh, win, win without a word, actually be the best thing, actually, actually give more than is asked of you. Uh, it's not because it's like, don't you lose your dignity, do it just because this is the proper order of things or something like that. It's actually because you're trying to create a result. I hate to put it that way. That's, that's, that's not the perfect language. Uh, you're, you're trying to make possible if, if God would use you, uh, 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 an effect in the life of another through the love that you show them. And what you're then coding yourself as actually is an actor, an agent. You're not just the passive recipient of all this victimhood, even though you are a victim, right. there are unjust things in this world. There are ways in which those are all true and you don't have to not deal with those things. But again, what the New Testament is being realistically about is like on this side of the veil of tears, a lot of that will not get dealt with and you're still here. And so you can still in that circumstance code yourself as somebody who actually is active, actually, even if you're a slave, has dominion. And I think you see that in slave narratives that come out of the South. One of the reasons these people are so profound when you read Harriet Jacobs or, uh, or Frederick Douglass or you know these various slave narratives where they, they become these pedagogues teaching you about kind of the ethics of slavery, um, a lot of them reflect some of that actually. Uh, there's a deep, shockingly, uh, there's even some deep compassion for the effect of the institution on the people that were their abusers. But there, the deep sense of the injustice, a deep uh, desire to push and fight against the institution. But there's also a deeper vocational, moral vocation that's recovered, I think, in a lot of those people who wrote about those systems. Uh, I don't know, throwing a lot of words out there, maybe some of that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, an interesting way to to frame it, because on the one hand, you could think, just grit your teeth, bear it, this is your lot in life, and there's no sense of power, even, of, of redemption, where yeah. it's like, no, this is, God has me in this place, he's sovereign, even over this evil thing, you know? Yeah. But then it's also not like this kind of revolutionary thing, where it's like, well, then my goal is to overthrow everything and to change the whole system. It's like, well, that might not happen. 
Yeah. You know, and the, or at least that won't happen in yes. your lifetime or something like that. And so there's this kind of tension of of it's not even about achieving the result before your eyes, but there's almost a right. sense of a, a humble kind of plotting that says, I'm going to fulfill my station. I'm going to run my leg of the race. Yes. You know, knowing that this is going somewhere. Yes. But it may not. I'm going happen. to be a face of God. That's what it is to be his image. I'm going to mm. be a face of God. Yeah. As much as I can to those around me. And nobody can take that away from you. And I think the New Testament wants you to really feel the vocationness of that. All your gifts go into that. Because uh, that's not just a general descriptor list. What that means is for you to become the most godlike in some sense, it is you to become most yourself. Uh, uh, and uh, and I think scripture would have you press into those things, uh, uh, whether you're a wife, whether you're yeah in an unjust economic situation. Though, Paul, and again, you know, again, Paul can say, if you can get out of it, get out of it. That's right. <laughs> you yeah. Know, you know, if you can get yeah. your freedom, that's awesome. Right. <laughs> so right. There's no, right. Exactly. And maybe there would even be if there was a, a you know, it, it's probably unimaginable in the first century AD. Maybe if there was legislation on the Roman ballot to get rid of slavery, Paul would have signed it. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, he's he's working within a, a pretty thick social arrangement at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's some powerful stuff. I mean, you have this really great phrase and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but where where you talk about how God works with you, you know, and he, and, and, and that, that there's a, almost a sense of what gives a uniqueness to Christian vocation or Christians conceptualization of how they're working is the sense of, of God's presence with them mm. in, in a powerful yes. way. Yes. Yeah. I think that, and I think Colin probably added those points. And if I, by the way, if Colin were here, well, I'll add to that. And then, I, I, I want to speak slightly for Colin because I think he'd also add something to a question you asked earlier, but but yeah, immediately with that, yeah, I think Colin added that point, and uh, but I think it's a I think it's a very good point that it is it, it vocation really is coram deo, uh, vocation really is. I mean, it's it's in the word. It's called, <laughs> you know, it's like who there implies a caller, uh, right. and to have a sense of vocation is not just to have a sense of something to do. It has a sense of something to, well, it's a, it's a giving of your life back to the source. It's a return to God, in a sense. It's a return of yourself to God through your act, in a sense. Not, not that you're saving yourself or something, sure. but that it's, you know, it's praise. Colin would probably add to all of this in the in the previous section, because, yes, there could be all these uh, uh, more dystopian scenarios where you have to sort of adjust to, well, I'm just here. Uh, Colin is a, a, a really uh, a good union guy. Uh, so you, there's a lot of union things in the essay that you might have come across. I did see and that. So, so that's part that's part of what where Colin would go with something like this is. And I, uh, I, I wouldn't say, even though I co-wrote this chapter with him, I wouldn't say I understand union politics that great. Uh, but I, I gather that he has he has some important points to make there that that in a, in, a, in a sense, I think the way Colin is imagining what unions do provisionally is put the pressure on put the pressure on systems in such a way that we do see a recovery of a more intimate relationship between kind of worker and the ownership of their own labor. And so I think Paulin just thinks like in the modern system, maybe it's not an ideal form of the union, but in the modern eco ecology, the more the real world, if we could put it that way, uh, the system of the union might be one of the effective ways in which you see some uh, uh, some 
amelioration of some of the negative effects of the things we're talking about. Um, and it is fair to say that it, it, you could also imagine some effects of, of, of that kind of thing creating a greater sense of locals in various places. One might one might associate union busting. <laughs> uh, and here, I'm speaking out of my lane, just for all the listeners. If you have big opinions about unions, what do I know? But one could associate union busting with the loss of a lot of neighborhoods, uh, mm. uh, you know, in, entire industries falling apart. And then, you know, Detroit has no people in it. <laughs> so... Uh, th that actually, th this reminds me when you talk about like the loss of community, this kind of reminds me of a thread that we had, we, that we were just talking about. And I kind of want to go back to it because now it's on the top of my mind. When, when you mentioned, you know, neighborhoods and households, and you talked about how suburbs could have been a center of community, but then both mom and dad now, they work out outside the home and all these types of things. And what is the what does the reclamation of a productive household look now after all that's happened you know yeah. i don't think we're saying go back to the 1950s and just you know whatever yeah no no and and i think i mean so we've seen some of this is just trends that we've seen since the 50s even if we're even if we rightly have some deep reticence about you know kind of gender stereotypes in the 50s or whatever and um uh, it is nevertheless the case that um what you've seen since the 50s, and I think this is fairly well fairly well established, is a fairly flattening of wages if you adjust for inflation, but the cost of living has gone up pretty steadily. And the way that's been adjusted for is is largely through you know the advent of credit. <laughs> uh, it's been it's been adjusted to for long by longer hours, more productivity out of each laborer. But the biggest adjustment has been the two-parent income or the two two-income household. Um and so one uh, this is where, again, I'm just going to be honest, I'm really out of my lane. Uh, but it, in my my instinct is that whatever political pressures say, why is it that in the 50s, uh, somehow labor was organized in such a way that you could have a one parent, one income household and that worked? Uh, is that actually impossible? Or are, are we all kind of vulnerable to somebody making decisions such that somehow that's no longer possible? And I think it's important to say that the, the movement of women to the workforce was couched in very feminist language as liberation. But a lot of women, and I think more and more contemporary feminists are actually seeing this because feminism and anti-capitalist discourse often go together. <laughs> but a lot of women are seeing this, that, that a lot of the kind of couching of that motion of all the women into the workforce in the language of feminism was kind of a, there's a bait and switch there. Uh, because what you're also doing is taking away from a lot of women, even if they're self-professed feminists, uh, uh, what they actually want. A lot of women actually would like to be a mom. And so my wife, my wife is a hairdresser and so talks to women all the time, very modern women, very um, kind of woke women, if we want to use that phrase. Uh, but a lot of them are just very frustrated because they have to work. Uh, uh, they, it, it's actually kind of, it's very hard to have any institution, you know, any household where two people aren't working. Uh, and so they, they actually live lives of, a lot of them live uh, very frustrated existences. Um, so long-winded way of saying uh, one one thing I just can't help but want to stare at is to say is it necessary? <laughs> is this is is this labor arrangement actually necessary? It's been different before. Why is it this way now? I don't understand. I, I don't want to say I understand the answer to that question. 
Uh, but what I'd say in addition to that is, yes, we can't, that doesn't necessarily mean go back to the previous arrangement. I do think, generally speaking, uh, I don't want to overly genderize it. Generally speaking, I'd say it's great if you can have a mom take care of kids for 10 years and dad get a job. And if you can make that work, great. And, and you can keep that, just that sense of household in the sense that there's a mom with kids at home, maybe around other moms with kids at home. Um, but again, I think in our in our context, a lot of that is going to be, do you choose it? Um, you can. You, you, there are some people, at least not everybody, but some people could prioritize and choose it. Uh, but the other side of that, again, is I think, um, I suspect the role that Zoom is going to wind up playing, uh, the role that the internet is going to play in the relationship between being at home and being at work. I suspect that's going to have a big effect in the nature of jobs themselves with kind of like retail. There's more and more retail automation and this sort of thing. So many jobs these days, I think, are the kinds of things that can be done at home. That's that's increasingly happening. And so it could just be innovation in jobs itself in combination with other legal movements just creates more hybrid, interesting models of what it means to stay home <laughs> uh, and have a community. And that conversation goes into churches as well. Uh, how does a church create a sense of local community when we all kind of live apart from the building? We all drive in and drive out. Well, some churches are thinking about ways of you know, establishing little parish groups and having members get together in a locale, even opening it up uh, to members outside of the institutional church who are part of that organism in that locale and that sort of thing. It's all unique, but we're all just kind of trying to figure out how to have ordinary human needs met uh, in a context where everything's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to and put I it in a technical academic term. And uh, it probably is. I mean, you said provisional, but I think everything everyone's doing is, is provisional. We're still figuring it out. Yeah, right. And that's right. It is an interesting statement you made about Zoom. And because when, when I think I read about productive household and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, and then you sit down, it's like, are we just all going to make sweaters and give to the people? Like, yeah. what, what, what no. does that even mean? <laughs> it's not going to happen. But, but then you think about we also have it's a different time, but there's also different opportunities. People can work from home and you can do all kinds of different entrepreneurial type things or whatever. Yeah. And, and and it doesn't require as much time. And I think even people are the eight hour work day and, you know, yes. 40 hour work week, all these things are, I think people are finding hybrid ways to um, make the household productive in ways that don't require us to, you know, all homestead, nothing against that, but I don't know that no, everyone yeah, can exactly, do that, you know? Exa exactly. It's really, really what we're after is not some model of, you know, the ancient household. What you're after is to whatever extent, having some degree of, of ownership of your own life and family for the glory of God. Really, really, it's not, it's just trying to get out of that sense of being a passenger uh, mm -hmm. in the civilization, in my own life, in my own community. And if I can re reframe that, you feel a deeper sense of ownership of your life and of your community and your family, of your church. And I think that's all, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing we're seeking here. And yeah, we live in a weird time. And so the models of what that's exactly going to look like are also weird uh, until they become normal. <laughs> you, you did mention the church community thing. And, and I, and that's a, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that really stimulated my mind as I was reading your chapter. And I don't know, maybe this was Colin's idea. It's kind of like, I'm, it's like a guessing game. Like, did Joe think it was it Joe or Colin? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah you know, right. but, uh, but you did talk about the church community and even spiritual gifts. And this is something that, mm. you know, you, you kind of, you, you, you tell people like 
everyone has a spiritual gift and we need them all. And under the subtext, like, but we really just need a guy to play guitar and a guy who can preach. Well, you yeah, know, exactly. and it's like, what? Well, yeah. and then, and then if you can, you know, you have these, and, and the gifts, they don't seem to have the weight that the new Testament gives them. How do we give a sense of people's vocation regarding their spiritual gifts yeah. in, in, in a church? And I, I know there's not a perfect answer, but have you seen ways in which your own community or, or you've sought to push people in that way in your own life as you've, as you've thought through these issues? Yeah. And this is, this is partly teaching. This is partly just organic church and uh, uh, mutual encouragement and stuff. But I think the vision within which that's going to be accomplished is a, is a church that d- takes the gifts very seriously, not in that old sense, like we're probably both children of the nineties and took our fair share of spiritual gifts tests and came out a prophet or a teacher or an admin. And, well, if you're a prophet, you should marry a mercy because you'll balance each other out or whatever, you know, it's like uh, the, 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 the prototype for the Enneagram, you know? Yeah, that's That's right. It's Christian Enneagram personality yeah. tests. That really is how they function. Uh <laughs> Right. The New Testament, I think a good way of thinking about it is I think the New Testament teaching on the gifts really syncs up with the New Testament teaching on weakness. I've been reflecting on this uh, for for a while, uh, and I think it helps us think about the profundity of the gifts. There's this verse in the New Testament that says, you who are weak, you who are strong, bear with those who are weak. Uh, And I I think that's such a powerful statement because what the strong often can do and this is especially true in, I think, household movements. What it can become is like, oh, look at us doing the household thing. Look at all those losers who are just passengers in their life. But you who are strong, bear with those who are weak. What it actually means is take that area in which you're strong and lend its advantages to those who don't have that. And mm-hmm. so what we do after that is we say, well, who are the strong and who are the weak? And I think what the New Testament does with its teaching on the gifts is it says you're all both. Um, mm-hmm. You're strong in this. You're weak in other things. But that person is strong in those things. And what we tend to do as humans is say, well, the model human is somebody who, if you're merciful, it's like the person who's nice to everybody. That's what it means to be like Jesus. You know, and everybody else is measured by their proximity to being as nice as I am. Um, rather, now, it is good to be nice. That is a dignified thing. That is a way of ruling. It's actually a part of dominion that you lend to the community. But when you rather look at it not as, uh, oh, I'm pissed that nobody else has this gift like I do, but rather here is that strength and gift that I have to give to them. And this is where I think it becomes a vision for you. When you can see you're good at something, you're, you have something to offer your community. Uh, and, and what that predominantly means is you looking for ways to go give it to them, not necessarily expecting that you're going to get exactly what you're giving out in that way, but you will get an enormous amount of their gifts to you. Actually being able to go into that vulnerable space of proximity is precisely it's precisely that space where we're close enough to each other to give and receive gifts from each other. Uh, and so I think, yeah, that sense of gifts in the new, gifts are everything in the New Testament, because in a sense they are, they are a way in which we plug into the church uh, by virtue of something that we really do bring to the table and feel, in a sense, that we bring to the table, are affirmed by the church, uh, but also then receive from the church where we're weak. Um, and I think that's deeply applicable, actually. To, it's funny, it's like such a small thing about the church in the New Testament, but I don't know of an institution that doesn't work that way, that flourishes. I could say the same thing about a business, a home, uh, uh, the Davenant Institute, as I've worked with those guys, part, a large part of which has made each of those things in my experiences work, is that people learn what they're good at. They plug into each other by virtue of what they're good at. 
they make up for each other's weaknesses <laughs> by virtue of what they're good at, and they receive from each other. Uh, and to me, that's just in a, in a sense, it's kind of like just how life works uh, when you get down into it. And a lot of what the New Testament is doing in the church is just healing the human race uh, at a ground zero level. And it's when you say this, I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, we, you got to put the we got to dust off those spiritual gift tests and just put them out in a mass email to the church. And but, <laughs> but, but you know, even in that mentality, I'm like, wow, that is. Like, even when we think about implementing it, like, how how is that going to happen, I think, in the most sustainable way? Well, people have to interact with each other yes. a lot, right? That's and how I they think, discover their gifts. And we have, yep. and we, we, we want to skip that step and go yes. just fill out the survey, and then we find a program, we make you do yes. the thing. That's when really these things organically emerge with, with an awareness, with teaching, with a framework for it. But there, it requires a genuine multiple interactions, un, unplanned interactions, you know, the, the, the kind yes. of stuff that makes a community go that's, that's kind of intangible, but it's yes. necessary. Yeah, that's really insightful. And I even I even said earlier, maybe I emphasize going to give your gifts. Maybe that's even overstating because, you know, you imagine people that are like, I'm a teacher. So they go teach, you know. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I tried to do when I entered the church I'm in now, because I knew that I had teaching gifts of some sort, uh, I didn't walk in and offer them, actually. I tried to walk in and just relate to, and I'm not trying to use myself as an example, but one thing I, but I think what you said is very valuable. I'm just trying to support it, really, that uh, intuitively, I think my my sense was, I'm going to walk in here and just get to know people. And if they wanted to, if they notice it, they'll notice it. Uh, right. uh, and it, because I'm just relating to them by being me. Uh, and I think that's, that's exactly right. Uh, gifts really are discovered through, just ordinary human interactions. And it's partly internally known, but it's also the community pointing at you and saying, hey, you do that really well. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing that you said about encouraging people to use their gifts. You know, I think I could imagine it might be intimidating for some to say, I have the gift of this or that. And then being there to say, no, I actually know this is about you can be a practical way that you can maybe build a culture uh, of people kind of viewing their gifts as something to be given to other people. And, you know, but again, I think it's, this is probably a multi-year project to kind of push a church's culture that way, because there's a lot of things going against it. You know, you mentioned people live further away from the building. There's not mm -hmm. as much a sense of natural community. The natural structures of society aren't really there. Um, but I don't think it's hopeless. And uh, I think, I think the stuff that you've written can apply in a lot of ways to the church, and uh, I'm I'm glad that you uh, you wrote it, even if maybe most of the good ideas were calling. I don't know. I mean, it just yeah, I'm sure was, well, almost almost certainly. And one one last thing, if I could add, Brian, I think yeah. that's really helpful is is uh, and I'm getting this from my friend Jim Pocka is that part of the other way to think about gifts is that they arise from our own stories, hmm. and I think it's very helpful to say that your gifts aren't just. They're not just like kind of random attachments to you, but rather it's through your whole life in God's providence, whatever your story is, that God prepares good works for you. And that part of what giving your gifts in the church is, is to, it's actually always part of the redemption. Uh, I say always, but it, it, it's often at least a part of God's redeeming of you uh, to make fruit out of a life, uh, make fruit out of your own pain. Uh, to mm -hmm. make fruit, you know, so people who give mercy aren't just like merciful. A lot of times they've they they are merciful, but they've also lived a life 
where their mercy is profound and God, God, you know, your gifts are connected to your story. And so that's another part of why your comment is important is coming together is the way we learn each other's stories. And it's and especially there where we're going to learn each other's gifts. Yeah. That's a great way to end it. I mean, that could be a whole other podcast. And yeah. Was, we'll do that, that next time. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Will be the next time. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Joe. Really appreciate it. I'm going to yeah, put a pleasure. link to the book uh, for you guys so you can check it out. And uh, Joe, it's always a pleasure. Always enjoy having you. Hopefully, I think this will uh, help a lot of people and uh, great, grateful for your work on it. All right. Thanks, Brian.